0: This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, the former president meets a no-nonsense judge,
1: what he said on the stand in front of the woman he sexually abused, and what the judge did not even let his lawyer ask. Plus, the lawmakers who've been saying for years they want a border deal but now can't seem to take yes for an answer. We're keeping them honest. And later, a school shooter's mother on trial charged with involuntary manslaughter while she and her husband are being held responsible for the murder of four students by their troubled son. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with Donald Trump's brief testimony in the penalty phase of his second trial for defaming Eugene Carroll. It came after the judge, Louis Kaplan, reiterated in graphic detail what the former president had already been found liable for, namely sexually abusing Ms. Carroll. Also, with several interjections from the defendant, the judge established tight parameters on what Trump attorney Alina ha- Haba could and could not ask. It made for quite a scene today. And CNN political analyst, New York Times senior political correspondent, Trump biographer Maggie Haberman was in court to see it. So was CNN's Kara Scannell. Also joining us, CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig and Karen friedman Um Kara, what, what did it say on the stand?
2: I mean, it was so fascinating. They spent about 10 minutes going back and forth to try to really contain the questions that would be asked and what Trump's answers would be to stick to those confines. And then his testimony was over in less than three minutes. So it was just three straight questions from his attorney, Lena Haba. They had Earlier in the day, Carol's team actually played uh, video clips of Trump's deposition in this case, where he mistakes Carol for Marla Maples in a photograph and also just repeats some of his statements that he doesn't know her, calling her mentally ill. so Haba asked Trump, do you stand by your testimony in the deposition? Trump says 100% yes. She then asked him, did you deny the allegation because Miss Carroll made an accusation? Trump said, that's exactly right. Yes, I did. She said something that I considered a false accusation, totally false. The judge cut him off and said everything after, yes, I did, is stricken from the record. That was really the only time we saw Trump veer away from what was very strictly adhered to. And the last question Haba asked him was, did you ever instruct anyone To hurt Miss Carroll in your statements, Trump said, no, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency. The judge also told the jury, disregard everything after no. So it was such a contrast from when Trump was on the stand in the civil fraud trial where he used that as a platform to make political speeches, Mm. to attack the judge, to attack the New York attorney general, you know, really kind of taking the campaign into the courtroom. That was not the case today. It was very controlled, and his statements were really just specific to the questions and ones that had already been worked out.
1: just from a legal standpoint, did Trump do himself any favors testifying today?
3: Well, it certainly could have been way worse. I was actually surprised that he really seems to have done very little, if any, harm to himself. And I think the irony of this is Donald Trump has complained loudly about the judge here, Lewis Kaplan, who I appeared in front of many times. Yet, I think Judge Kaplan did Donald Trump a real favor because, as Kara laid out, the judge throughout this trial has set very tight parameters, and he has allowed zero nonsense, true to form, for Judge Kaplan— And as a result, Donald Trump was not able to get up in front of the jury and go on a political tangent and to make himself a martyr. He just answered three fairly straightforward questions in very straightforward fashion. Now, it remains to be seen, A, will the jury believe what he said, credit what he said? And B, even if so, how much is that going to reduce the damages award?
1: Maggie, what stood out to you in court?
4: Well, so I had a slightly different take. I think part of why Trump was so controlled, comparatively speaking, is he is always pretty good at figuring out the bounds of what he can get away with. And I think he had been warned repeatedly, this is not a state court. This is not Engoron's court. Kaplan is really no nonsense. And it's a federal court. So to wit, Trump's spokesman was thrown out of court because his phone went off at one o'clock and the rest of us had to give up our phones. Um, and, and I don't think that that's going to be, that person's going to be permitted back. Um, so I think that Trump was aware of what the parameters were, but he did Still, go outside what he was supposed to do, and so when Kaplan was was having this discussion with Alina Haba about what Trump would say, he literally kept saying, "Tell me exactly what he's going to say," and he would say, "So is that really it? And are you sa- are you standing by that?" And Haba kept saying, "That's my understanding, as I understand it, and it's what we hear people do with an asterisk with Trump over and over again." And he did go outside of what he was supposed to do. So, and I th- he got in the things he wanted to say in front of the jury. So I don't think he hurt himself, but I actually think he managed to get away with a little more than it seems. He's
1: expected back in court tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yes. How much of this is about his feelings about this case and the importance of it? How much of it is, for political reasons, fundraising? I, I
4: I think it's both. I mean, but I do think that he is he has been incensed about this case since 2021. I mean, I've been hearing complaints about this for for two and a half years. Uh, he regretted not testifying in the initial trial that was held. He regretted um, that you know he, he heeded advice by everybody, not just his counsel at the time, not to testify. He is very big on control. And he is very big on believing that he's his own best defender. So I think that's a big reason. But does it have advantages? Absolutely. And these court cases have become indistinguishable from the campaign trail. Yeah.
1: What, what, Karen, what was your biggest legally takeaway from uh, what happened?
4: Well, interestingly, he called
5: uh, her prompt outcry. E. Jean Carroll's prompt outcry witness, uh, Carol Martin, to the stand. His side did, and and it, that hasn't been talked about as much as as him testifying. But I thought he actually made a little headway there, uh, because this is a damages phase of the trial, and the jury needs to figure out and put a number on how much, how much damage, frankly. Uh, he did to E. Jean Carroll's life. And what he got out of Carol Martin, who was a prompt outcry witness, meaning she's the person who E. Jean- told about this back when it happened. Yeah, exactly. She also had some thoughts about e. Aging Carroll that she admitted to putting in writing to I think it was her daughter, talking about how she liked the attention and she she was somebody who likes the public spotlight and and is not this was not this didn't ruin her life the way she has said it would, and I think he made a little headway there yeah. from from the damages portion because that's really all they're determining is how much, right. how much money, what number to affix to this. So if it didn't harm her, then I think that mm-hmm. that so might have so. made some headway.
1: I and Kara, what happened? You agree with that, me? Yeah. I um, think it's what happens tomorrow?
2: So tomorrow will be closing arguments. Both sides say they're going to take about an hour. Then the judge instructs the jury on the law, and then deliberations will begin maybe even by lunchtime. You know, and it's possible, I think, we could see a verdict tomorrow, because if you look at the first case, they had to uh, find—answer the question of the sexual abuse question, the defamation question, the damages question. They did that under three hours. So it's possible, unless the jury is really in disagreement, that there could be a verdict tomorrow.
1: And also, Ellie, just in the in the Georgia case, uh, the election subversion case, Trump's attorneys are joining calls for the dismissal of the DA, Fonnie Willis. What are they alleging in the new filing and how likely is it that she will be dismissed? I mean, her judgment is in question.
3: Yeah, so two sets of allegations here. I don't think either of them is likely to result in the charges against Trump being dismissed, but I think there's a real question about whether the DA... Can continue on the case. The first set of allegations is that the DA's office brought in three outside lawyers to help work on the case on a contract basis. That happens. The allegation is that the DA has a personal romantic relationship with one of the th- three lawyers, a man named Nathan Wade. The allegations, first of all, he's underqualified to do this. He's never tried a felony case at all. Now he's trying the biggest felony case in the history of the state of Georgia. The allegation is that he was paid, and the documents back this up, $650,000 for his work when the other two were both paid under $100,000. And finally, the allegation is that some of that money paid to Mr. Wade was used for personal vacations that he took and personal recreation with the DA, Fannie Willis. So we'll see how that comes out. There's a hearing on that on February 15th. Allegation two is that we remember a couple weeks ago The D.A. went in front of a church and made a public speech where she said, essentially, isn't it interesting that of the three lawyers I brought in, they're picking on the black man. And she essentially suggested, or maybe more, that the motivation behind these defendants motions was racist. And so the allegation is that those statements are potentially prejudicial to the jury pool that will eventually decide this case. Sharon, do you think these are grounds for dismissal?
5: I do not. I I think if perhaps she had a relationship with a defense attorney or a judge on the case, then there's a a direct conflict of interest. But this is literally two consenting adults in an office romance. I mean, this is kind of more of an HR type issue than an issue that you would see would be disqualifying on a case.
1: Isn't it incredibly stupid? I mean, if in fact she had a relationship with this person, I mean, how this is probably the biggest case of her life. It's something that the whole country is watching. You would think any responsible adult would be ultra careful in their behavior, wouldn't you?
5: Yeah, you would. And uh, and she definitely, I think, regrets. It, part of the speech that she gave was that she's made some mistakes. And uh, and I think she, she agrees with that assessment. But at, at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with whether or not Donald Trump or the other defendants did what they are alleged to have done. And this really is a distraction and a sideshow that has nothing to do substantively with the case. Ellie,
1: didn't she get called out previously by a judge for incredible lack of judgment in throwing a fundraiser for somebody?
3: Exactly. She was already disqualified by a different judge during the grand jury phase because she held a political fundraiser for the political opponent of someone she subpoenaed. And I I agree with Karen that whether this is romantic or not is... Doesn't matter to me. What does matter, and I think is a serious issue, is the money and the payment of an enormous amount of money to this person who she has some sort of relationship. Doesn't matter if it's romantic or not. And then some of that money making its way back to her. That's a real issue. And then separately, the comments, I think, in front of a church. I mean, why do we have these gag orders on Donald Trump? One of the big reasons is we collectively, we the justice system, are afraid that his public comments might taint a jury pool. Here you have the D.A., Very popular in Fulton County, standing up and saying, the reason these defendants, these people I'm trying to lock up, are making these statements is because of race. That's incredibly inflammatory.
1: Everybody, thanks. Uh, Coming up next with a bipartisan deal on fixing the border on the brink, how the former president is trying to sink it with the help of Republican lawmakers, the same lawmakers, we should point out, who've been demanding action on the border for years. We're keeping them honest. Next. And also breaking news on the unprecedented move the Republican Party took up and how it Might have turned the ongoing nomination process into a virtual coronation for the former president.
0: All there is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle-up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk-monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in, to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle-up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com griefsupport grief support.
1: With Senate talks on a bipartisan immigration and border security deal very much in question, the former president late this evening definitively answered a question that we and other news outlets have been asking for several days now, not to mention senators and Congress members, including members of his own party. Namely, why are Republican lawmakers now backing away from finalizing a deal, that could help finally address the border crisis. The former president has obviously focused much of his campaign on the issues regarding the southern border. And there's no doubt just about every aspect of border security and the asylum process does need to be reformed, funded, better managed, which is why House Republicans, for better or worse, have refused to even consider funding for Ukraine unless coupled with a border deal. And it's why Republicans rarely miss a chance to blame President Biden for the border problems.
0: The crisis at our border is a direct cause of Biden's dangerous and intentional policies.
6: We do not know who is entering this country.
7: It is worse than it's ever been in my experience of going to the
0: border.
6: It's not just the policy, Brian. It's people have died
0: as a result of the policy. Countless amounts of drugs being smuggled into our country and killing Americans. The
8: Biden regime absolutely has blood on its hands for their failure to secure our border.
0: We've had
5: hundreds and hundreds of terrorists come across the border.
0: This is a disaster that doesn't just affect the border states, it affects everybody. They want as many illegals
1: that flood their sanctuary cities, that they can give IDs, that they can start letting them vote in local elections, but eventually start voting in federal elections. Right now, America is being invaded.
7: Our geographical integrity is gone because we don't have a southern border.
0: It's a direct result of Joe Biden's failed policies. You've got people, leaders, Republican, Democrat, all across America pleading with President Biden to address this
7: problem, and he refuses. They don't want to secure the border. They want an open border.
1: Well, actually, they don't. President Biden has repeatedly acknowledged the problems at the border, and the White House has been negotiating for weeks, along with Democratic and Republican lawmakers in the Senate, to reach a deal. But then... All of a sudden, several days ago, Republicans began to back away from one. And as we and others have been reporting, indications began emerging that it's because the former president, Donald Trump, does not want a deal as long as Joe Biden is president. Said another way, he doesn't want the problem fixed or even addressed because it won't be good for him, which today prompted a number of independents and Republicans to weigh in. I think the border is a very important issue for Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is, uh, is really appalling. And as if on cue, he roasts the senator's bait. Posting on social media, the former president wrote, quote, we need a strong, powerful and essentially perfect border And unless we get that, we are better off not making a deal, even if that pushes our country to temporarily close up for a while, because it will end up closing anyway with the unsustainable invasion that is currently taking place, a death wish for the USA. The former president tonight describing in his mind an existential crisis, something he's willing in all caps to scream about, but not anything he's actually willing to let his own party do something about, because it doesn't benefit him. We're now in all this from CNN's Melanie Zenona at the Capitol. It's pretty hard to believe that after hearing all that, Republicans are not taking the opportunity to get something accomplished on the border. What, What has changed?
8: Well, Donald Trump happened, Anderson. He has really complicated the dynamic here on Capitol Hill. There were already a number of conservatives who were worried that this deal, which has yet to be released, was going to be too weak for them, in their view. But now you have Republicans who are on the fence and worried about crossing Donald Trump, especially as he is on a glide path towards the nomination and has had this real resurgence inside the GOP. I'm told that Trump has actually been personally encouraging lawmakers to try to sink this deal, a large part because of the fact that he wants to be able to campaign on this issue in november and does not want to give president joe biden a win on an area where he is probably politically vulnerable now the senators who are involved in these negotiations say they're going to keep pressing on they are undeterred they're hoping to reveal bill text by sometime next week but the reality is that it is going to be an uphill climb for the compromise at this point anderson
1: We showed you the the latest post from the former president telling Republicans to hold out for a, quote, perfect border. Has there been any reaction to this? What what impact could it have on, I mean, on the border itself?
8: Yeah, well, luckily for a lot of these senators, they were already gone by the time Trump blasted out that uh, post on Truth Social. But there is a lot of frustration in the ranks. This is an all-too-familiar dynamic for many Republicans who served when Donald Trump was in office. And it is not the first time that we have seen lawmakers working behind the scenes on a very delicate, complicated issue, only to seeing it all blow up in the very end because of Donald Trump. That's exactly what looks like it's happening once again. And a lot of members are really upset about it, but they know they are essentially powerless to stop it, even though there is still a contingent of Republicans who want to get a deal on the border here, Anderson.
1: So is this officially dead? In, in the Senate? I-
8: Yeah, I wouldn't say it's officially dead yet. They're going to try to reveal bill text next week, try to set up a vote. They're going to try to work through the weekend. And Mitch McConnell did say he is still committed to trying to find a deal here, but the dynamics have really not changed at all on Capitol Hill. And even if it's able to pass the Senate, it is likely going to be dead on arrival in the House. In fact, I just reported that a senior leadership aide to Steve Scalise, he's the number two House Republican, who sets the floor agenda in the House, he informed a group of Republican chief of staffs in the Senate that if the deal comes over the way they think it is shaping up to be, that it is going to go nowhere in the House. And so what you have here is that Senate Republicans are going to have even less incentive to back this deal, knowing that Trump is against it and knowing that it is going to go nowhere in the House.
1: and thanks very much. Coming up, breaking news that has been quickly changing, even in the last few minutes, about a Republican resolution to declare the former president the presumptive Republican nominee before the race is even over. We have new details about the former president, knew about the resolution and its current status just ahead. All day, we've been hearing new details about an unprecedented act to end what has become a bitter contest for the Republican nominee for president. First, we heard that the former president's allies wanted to effectively end the contest and put the full weight of the Republican Party behind the former president and against Nikki Haley as the presumptive nominee. Then came the blowback. After that, the former president announced he didn't want that. He said he wanted to win, quote, the old-fashioned way. And now, breaking news, new details about his support for that resolution and about the state of the resolution itself. Kristen Holmes joins us now with the latest. So first, explain the step that the RNC was actually considering taking.
9: Okay. So, well, first of all, I do want to say one thing, because I do think there is breaking news here, which is that the proposal doesn't exist anymore. It has been withdrawn by David Bossi, the Trump ally who put it forward to begin with. So here's what happened today. We know he put forward this draft resolution. It was circulating among Republican National Committee members, essentially saying that the RNC should just come out and back Donald Trump, Trump as the presumptive nominee. This would be an unprecedented step for the committee. They are usually to remain neutral. And in fact, they would be essentially saying not only would they, they are backing Donald Trump, but that they were opposing Nikki Haley, which is Never been done before. So this was circulating. It was going to go to the committee. The RNC pushed back pretty hard saying this is just a draft. It's probably not going to go through. However, it would have given Trump a lot of opportunities because what happens when the RNC ends up actually backing a candidate is they get access to all of the RNC's files, their database, for example, their ground operations, the list goes on. And so there was a lot of blowback about this. So what has happened now? So essentially what happened is that Donald Trump, who we are told actually was for this resolution when it was proposed to him. And just a reminder, David Bossie is very close to Donald Trump. It is very unlikely that, bossy would put this forward without going through someone in the trump campaign so we were told that they gave it a green light but then they received a lot of backlash essentially allies telling me that they were warning the campaign that this could backfire that this could cause problems that this could essentially give nikki haley a leg up because it was making it look like trump was trying to stack the deck against her so donald trump puts out a statement saying essentially this and let me find it because I put it all the way over here. Okay. He posts this on True Social after, remember, after agreeing uh, on this. While I greatly appreciate the Republican National Committee RNC wanting to make me their presumptive nominee, and while they have far more votes than necessary to do it, I feel for the sake of the party unity that they should not go forward with this plan, but that I should do it the quote old-fashioned way and finish the process at the ballot box. Now, obviously. David Bossie heard that message loud and clear and has now withdrawn this resolution.
1: And what did Nikki Haley have to say about this whole idea?
9: Well, we got two things. First of all, she took a page out of Donald Trump's playbook and started fundraising off of this, saying the RNC is trying to uh, back the establishment candidate, being Donald Trump. So a very Trumpian move. And we also heard this from her spokesperson. He said, if Ronna McDaniel, who's the chair of the RNC, wants to be helpful, she can organize a debate in South Carolina unless she's also worried that Trump can't handle being on the stage for 90 minutes with Nikki Haley. Now, this is something that Nikki Haley has been pushing for, saying she wants to take Trump on. I have talked to Trump's campaign many times. There is no indication that he's going to change his strategy and get up on the stage with her. Right now, they don't really feel like they have to. They feel like they still are winning this. Anderson.
1: All right. Kristen Holmes, thanks very much. Howard Dean joins us now. He's both a former Democratic Party chairman and a former presidential candidate and former governor of Vermont, obviously. Governor Dean, good to see you. The former chair of your own party. Can you just put this in context? If this resolution had actually moved forward, how big of a deal would this have been?
7: Well, I mean, this is so interesting because it's actually tied into the immigration debate. Is this Trump's party or is this the Republican Party or does this party even belong in America? What you've got is one guy who, at his whim, can twist around senators and congressmen in any way and then make them look stupid f- 10 minutes later. And this is exactly what's going on at the RNC. It is a ridiculous idea that the DNC or the RNC should intercept uh, what's the, the public process Uh, in terms of who gets the nomination. And nobody would do that in their right mind, but we know somebody who's not in their right mind who actually seems to have had their henchmen draw this up and then realize it was a really stupid thing to do.
1: You know, on the the border issue, as Mitt Romney pointed out today, I mean, the idea that the former president would, you know, get senators, members of the House, but, but most importantly right now, members of the Senate, To basically back away from an actual border deal because he didn't want to give any kind of perceived win to the White House uh, while you know during this election because he wants to run on the border is pretty. I mean, it's not surprising, I guess, but it's it's. I mean, it's deeply cynical.
7: Anderson, Donald Trump has never given a damn about the United States States of America. The only thing Donald Trump gives a damn about is Donald Trump, and that is what is going on here. The trouble is when he has the power to intimidate all those people in his own party who are being jerked around so fast they have no idea which is up or down anymore, it hurts the country. We need a strong Republican party. Right now, we don't have any Republican party. We have a guy who's controlling them all because they're so fearful they're hiding under the bed. It's ridiculous. But to hear
1: you know, all these members of the House, Republican members of the House, pointing out all many problems uh, on the border any kind of a solution at hand for some sort of non-existent, perfect solution that the former president is talking about down the road, uh, it's, you know, I mean, pe- people's lives are, I mean, people, people are dying, people's lives, you know, there are a lot of people's lives are, are hanging in the balance here.
7: The Republican Party cares much more about the Republican Party than they do about the United States of America. And I think people are going to figure that out. Uh, and I suspect uh, Joe Biden is going is to beat Donald Trump. And that's why, at the end of the day, Americans are patriotic. And I know there are a lot of people who think Donald Trump is the solution to all these problems. The fact is, Donald Trump's going to make them worse. Uh, and it's going to be a huge problem because Donald Trump does not care about all those people who go to the rally. He'd sell them out in five seconds if he needed to. And he's selling out his own members in the House and Senate right now.
1: You don't believe that the former president will win?
7: No, I don't. I think Biden's going to beat him because I think eventually people are going to get that Donald Trump cares only about Donald Trump and he doesn't give a damn about any of those people who are going to his rallies. Is there,
1: I mean, even with poll numbers as they are, even with, you know, I mean, the, the current president has historically low poll numbers right now.
7: I'll tell you, well, so did Harry Truman, uh, you know, when he won in 1948 and beat Tom Dewey. And Tom Dewey was a much better American than Donald Trump ever was. So, look, I just think if if you look at what Biden's accomplished is probably more domestically in terms of especially climate change, jobs in rural America and boosting our tech. He's accomplished more than any Democratic president uh, domestically uh, since Lyndon Johnson. Mm. So uh, eventually this is going to seep through. Look, the American people are not stupid. Uh, and they're going to eventually figure out that they're going to get hurt badly by four more years of Donald Trump. And this is the perfect evidence. This guy will turn on a dime to do whatever he thinks is going to help him. And he does not ca- He doesn't care about immigration. He likes the immigration problem because it gives him a leg up in the election. That's pretty sad.
1: Mm. Governor Dean, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the connection between securing the southern border and the explosion of drug and gang related violence in Ecuador. How bad is it in Ecuador? David Culver takes us to the front lines next.
0: Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk-monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible.
1: According to a senior administration official, the crisis at the southern border is one likely reason the President Biden plans to increase assistance to Ecuador. Ecuador was once considered an island of peace and stability in the region, but now with drug trafficking and gang violence, the country is under a state of emergency. And U.S. officials worry that could prompt residents to flee toward the U.S. Now, you may remember the video from earlier this month. Authorities in Ecuador say 13 armed men burst into a TV station during a live broadcast. No one was killed, there were unconfirmed reports of the injuries. There've been explosions, police kidnappings, prison riots, recently in the last election, a presidential candidate was assassinated. Tonight, David Culver shows us what police there are facing. We wanna warn you some of what you're about to see is disturbing. We're the
10: fourth in a convoy of what looks to be about four pickup trucks all of them unmarked, no lights, no sirens, all the officers in plain clothes. We're with Ecuador's national police force as they're dispatched to a house with suspected ties to terror groups. They won't tell us where exactly we're headed and they ask us to blur their faces. So we'll keep it vague. We're just outside Guayaquil, Ecuador's largest city, and headed into one of the most violent areas, Durán. More than a dozen officers storm what could be mistaken for an abandoned barn, but their intel suggests otherwise. They cuff two men and search the high grass and weeds. On each corner, security cameras strategically positioned. Officers hack them down. As they leave here, we notice even he's carrying some evidence. It's like a gun and several rounds in that baggie. This is just one of thousands of raids across Ecuador carried out over the past two weeks. Ecuador's military now deployed to neighborhoods. We went with them. Over here we see two guys who have been detained for now. Officials arresting more than 3,000 people so far. Ecuador's latest surge in violence sparked by the suspected prison escape of notorious gang leader Jose Adolfo Macias, known as Fito reported missing from this massive prison compound on January 7th. If you look over here, this is where officials tell us FITO was being held, possibly is still being held. They really don't know. A top military commander telling me the prison system is rife with mismanagement and heavy gang influence. So much so that FITO could still be hiding inside. Pito's disappearance led President Daniel Noboa to declare a state of emergency, vowing to neutralize terror groups. A day after Noboa's declaration, on January 9th, 13 armed men took over a television news studio in Guayaquil. They put guns to the heads of employees, forcing them to the ground, and held up what looked to be sticks of dynamite. Folks watched it all unfold on live TV, among them, Camille Gamarra and her husband Diego Gallardo. Feeling the unease, Diego decided to pick up their 10-year-old son. But minutes before reaching his school, someone opened fire on the streets. Diego stopped messaging Camille, who was frantically trying to call him. A police colonel eventually answered and told Camille Diego had been shot. Chaos rocked Ecuador that day, especially in Guayaquil, where barricades went up and streets shut down. This young girl, still in her school uniform, also hit by a stray bullet. The hospital later saying she survived thanks to a security guard who drove her to the emergency room. A family friend was able to get Camille's son to safety. But Diego died before Camille could get to him.
0: no hacer nada. De quedarme sentada sin poder hacer nada.
10: Across town, National Police and Armed Forces stormed the television studio, capturing the gunmen before they could kill any of the hostages. And this is the studio where the terror group entered, and 13 of them. We saw firsthand the damage left behind. So, this is the studio door, and you can see, I can count here, one, two, three, four, five, six, about a half dozen bullet holes. The day after our visit and a brazen strike against the government, suspected gang members assassinated the prosecutor investigating that studio takeover. You can see he's pulling this car over right now. Police and military now stepping up their efforts, setting up random checkpoints. Every possible hiding place searched. I just saw one of the soldiers signaling to the other, look at his arm, look at his arm. They check tattoos for any gang affiliations and even scroll through people's phones. They also board commuter buses to get intel. He's asking, do they have anything they need to tell him or inform about? He says, we're doing this operation for you all. Residents here struggle with what's happened to their country over the past few years. They tell me gangs are growing bolder and holding people and their businesses hostage, demanding protection money, known as vacunas. What happens if you don't pay the vacuna, if you don't pay the extortion?
9: They get a contract killer and and kill you. They put an explosive outside your your store.
10: The military tries to weed out those responsible, raiding homes like this one, holding the suspects at gunpoint as neighbors, including kids, watch it's a lot to take in. She says the fact that there are police here, it's comforting, she accepts that, and that there's military now patrolling the streets. What she doesn't like is that it goes into people's homes and it's now pouring out onto the street. But this is war. At least that's how the government here sees it. And they're asking the US for support. Desperate for tactical equipment? ammo and intel. Why should the U.S. help? Because people will look at this from the U.S. and they'll say, well, that's Ecuador's problem.
9: I mean, if, if you don't help us, probably you will see more people trying to cross the border I mean, because these people is in the middle of gunfights on their neighborhoods. What would you do?
10: Hey, you're not going to stay there.
7: You don't want to stay there.
10: Huh. Back on the front lines after executing their raid, we're reminded of the fear instilled by these gangs even among law enforcement. This officer putting on a ski mask in 90 degree heat and thick humidity before stepping into frame. And yet beneath those tactical layers, a soft spot, this soldier's not been home in a week, telling us the reason he's fighting is for his little girl. She wrote him a letter in English. I want you to know that everyone misses you here at home, and we want you to return safe and sound. And I ask you to help the country to be a better place. You are number
1: one. David Culver joins us now. How badly does the country's law enforcement need more international support? Or, I mean, what exactly are they asking from the U.S.?
10: It does feel a bit desperate, especially Anderson. At one point, we were with several of the soldiers as they were preparing to go in for one of those raids, and we looked around and we noticed. Some of them were not putting on helmets and extra layers of protection, and I asked one of them, I said, do you feel that confident, this is going to be a pretty light mission going in? And he said, it's not that, because we just don't have the resources. I wish I had it. He said, we're also limited ammo-wise to about 12 bullets a day. So they need the resources, and it sounds like right now the U.S. is stepping up. Back- our colleague Priscilla Alvarez, she sent me a note from her colleague, conversation with the White House, and, and they're trying to, as they put it, throw everything they have at this in the next 30 days to try to bring Ecuador under control. And it's interesting talking to the folks on the ground because there's a direct correlation between what we're seeing with migration and what's happening in destabilizing these countries. So if it falls in any more disarray, it's going to be an issue.
1: Yeah, David Gulliver, thanks so much had A history-making case, a mother on trial for involuntary manslaughter accused of being responsible for her son's deadly school shooting rampage. The father is also going to face trial on the same charges. I'll tell you what happened in court today. An historic trial is underway in Michigan in connection with the shooting deaths of four students at Oxford High School in 2021. Seven others were wounded. The shooter was 15 years old at the time. He's confessed the deadly rampage and he's serving life in prison without parole. His parents, though, are facing involuntary manslaughter charges related to his crimes, and that's a first. Never before has this happened in the U.S. Testimony in the mother's case started today. The father will be tried separately, and that's tentatively scheduled for March. If convicted, they each could face 15 years in prison. Prosecutors allege they ignored warning signs, and his father bought him a gun, and they took him to a shooting range. With today's court details, here's Gene Cazares. Jennifer Crumbly didn't pull the trigger that
0: day but she is responsible for those deaths.
6: Prosecutors laying out their case why Jennifer Crumbly should also be held responsible for the shooting deaths of four students committed by her son in November 2021 at Oxford High School in Michigan.
0: Despite her knowledge of his deteriorating mental crisis, despite her knowledge of his growing social isolation, this gun was gifted.
6: In an unusual move, prosecutors brought involuntary manslaughter charges against Crumbley and her husband James, accusing them of disregarding the risks when buying a gun for their son four days before the shooting, even though he was struggling with mental health.
0: They didn't do any number of tragically small and easy things that would have prevented all this from happening.
6: Crumbly and her husband are being tried separately, pitted against each other now, after Jennifer was overheard in jail, blaming her husband. Both have pleaded not guilty. The defense arguing that Crumbly could not know that her son's struggles would lead to murder.
9: When you evaluate that evidence and know what she knew and what she didn't know, you will see that this was absolutely not foreseeable. This was absolutely not expected.
6: In the spring of 2021, text messages show Crumbly's son told his mother he was seeing things. I got a picture of the demon. It is throwing bowls. Can you at least text back? On Black Friday that year, James, using money his son earned waiting tables, went with him to buy a gun. This Sig Sauer 9mm. That weekend, Jennifer took him to a shooting range. At school, two days later, their son was drawing a gun, bullets, and blood. The thoughts won't stop. Help me. Blood everywhere. My life is useless. His parents were asked to come to the school, where the counselor told them...
10: I am concerned that he needs somebody to talk to for mental health support.
8: And did you tell either one of them when that should occur?
10: I said as soon as possible, today if possible.
8: The Crumblies
6: said they had to get back to work, but would take him to a professional within 48 hours. No one looked in their son's backpack. Inside was that gun. He took it back to class and two hours later, opened fire. Medical emergency, Oxford High School. Scene is not secure. When he heard about the shooting, James Crumbly called 911.
0: I think my son took the gun. I don't know if it's him. I don't know what's going on. I'm really
6: freaking out. Jennifer texted her, son, don't do it. But it was too late. Madison Baldwin, Tate Meyer, Hannah St. Juliana, and Justin Schilling were dead. So it entered here and exited here. In Um, court today, one teacher recounting the terror when she was shot. I realize he's raising a gun to me.
2: I had texted my husband,
4: I love you, active shooter. Um, and then I started feeling blood
9: dripping down my arm.
1: It's a really an incredible case that, I mean, he said that he was seeing demons in their house and they bought him a gun and took him uh, to train shooting. I understand the mother wants her son to testify on her behalf along with his psychiatrist.
6: And it's a big legal issue right now because Jennifer's son texted a friend at school. He moved away, but there are thousands of texts. And one of these texts, a lot are going to come in, but one we know is going to come in where he texts his his friend and said, I told my dad I've got mental issues. I want to go to the doctor. He needs to take me. And my dad said, oh, suck it up. Take a pill. And my mother just laughed. That's coming in. However, it was just learned the psychiatrist assessed him after he was in jail, talked to him about this text. He said, you know, I made that all up. He said, I I didn't, I didn't, I just made it up to my friend. It wasn't true. It didn't really happen. So now they want, the defense wants the psychiatric records, the psychiatrist to testify, and their son, Jennifer's son, to testify to have what they believe is the full truth here. But the appellate lawyers are saying, no, this is privileged information. He's not going to testify. You're not going to get those records. So it's a big issue.
1: All right, Gene Cazares, thanks very much. We'll continue to follow. We'll be right back. Reminder, a new episode of my podcast about grief, All There Is, is now available. You can point your camera at the QR code that's on the screen right now, and a link will appear on your phone that you can click to download it. In this latest episode, I talk with a remarkable woman named Shamiem Harris. She's known as Mama Shu in her Detroit area. Two of her four kids have been killed. Three years ago, her 23-year-old son, Chin was working as a security guard when he was shot to death. And in 2007, her two-year-old son, Jacoby Ra, was killed in a hidden run. What's incredible about Mama Shu is that she has turned her loss into love, and as she says, her grief into glory. She's dedicated her life to transforming a rundown street in Highland Park, Michigan into a vibrant community called Avalon Village. She was one of CNN's top ten heroes of 2023. You'll find the episode and others on grief and loss on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. I hope you uh hope you enjoy it. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now.
0: Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk-monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk-monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.